Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Um, well, today uh, we've, we've got to the end of Ephesians. Well, we, the last passage of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We started a series on this months and months ago, and we're finishing it off today. And as a, an end of a book or a letter often does, this in many ways is a really just helpful, succinct summary of loads of stuff that's gone before in this letter. You, if you've been with us on this series or you know the book of Ephesians as well, you might well have spotted some little phrases, even some images that we've seen already uh, in this letter. So in a sense, it's just a summary. But actually, to some of us, this could seem like a jarring change of tone. There are similar concepts but there's a tone that you didn't spot before that is totally different. Let's just kind of recap slightly of where we've been. So if you've been on the journey with us or you've, uh, you know this book, we're just a reminder, if you're just new to us, they'd say, oh, I've never come across this before, um, it can bring up to speed as well. When Ephesians started in the first couple of chapters, what we started off with were these incredible revelations about Jesus and particularly about the victory of Jesus. Some of the stuff we've been singing about today, uh, actually, that Jesus had died, but he was raised from the dead. And not just that, he was ascended, he was lifted, to the place of supreme honor in the universe, far above any challenges, any competitors. And you're reading the first chapter or so, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. We're thanking Jesus. We're praising Jesus. And then um, we get slotted in, and we read then about our place in all of this stuff. As we, as we come to follow Jesus, Paul tells us, we share in his victory. We too are raised uh, with Christ. And what's the key feature of our new life in Christ? Well, uh, one of the key features, certainly in this letter, is peace. We were taken from a situation where we were, were, were away from God. We were brought into a, a situation where we have peace with God, but also that we have peace with each other and shown through, the, uh, through these two groups, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who were kind of a hostility to each other, but in God's family come to, to peace. And these passages at the beginning of this book, are, they're fantastic. They're encouraging passages. They make us thankful to God and the work that he's done. And on the back of all that, full of thanks and full of love and praise, just like at the end of the worship today, I, I think, we then get to chapters four and five, which we've seen in the last couple of weeks, which give us these very clear and specific instructions of how we should live in the light of all that Jesus has done for us. But the thing is, this is where things can, sometimes I think we can get the wrong end of the stick when we read a book, uh, book like Ephesians. Because we've got this news of Jesus' victory ringing eyes. He's done it all anyway. He's ascended to the throne. And actually, he saved us as a free gift. We sung about the free gift of God's grace today. Um, it, it's by grace. It's by God's grace. It's not because of what we've done. Paul makes it really, really clear to us in that regard. And so therefore, the instructions can just seem a little bit light to us, I suppose. It can seem a lot in the light of Jesus' victory and his grace. There's just not a whole lot of stake uh, with, the, with uh, these instructions. They kind of come across like gentle pieces of advice, kind of take it or leave it. We'll give some of these a go, but we don't need to take them too seriously. We just want to bask in the love of God. And it's the passages from the beginning of Ephesians. They're the ones we like to quote. They're the ones we like to sing. And they're the ones we like to remember. And if you read Ephesians like that, we come to this passage at the end and you're just going, oh, quick summary as we come into land. And you're like, what? Great in gear change. Because suddenly we were in like, hey, Jesus won this victory for us. And it's peace. Keep the unity of peace. There's peace, peace, peace. And Paul's like, no, you are at war. 
what? What's happening here? Fighting, battles, armor. What's going on? Of course, this isn't a change of tone. This is the tone that was always assumed through the whole book to the church that had been forged in actual battle, in a riot in their city where some of them were almost ripped to shreds by people who were physically attacking them. It's written by a guy who's in prison at this exact point, and the assumption was always, yeah, we're always at war, of course we are. And God in his grace for us generations later, who might get the wrong end of the stick here, gives us this end of the book to make absolutely sure we don't misread the tone of Ephesians. This letter was never meant to be heard like a bedtime story told to us by our grandpa while he bounces us on his knee. That is not the tone of Ephesians. The tone of Ephesians is the rallying cry of an army officer to his troops as they leave the plane and go out into enemy territory. That's the tone of this entire letter. The instructions of this letter are not take it or leave it nuggets of wisdom. They are orders from your commanding officer. And what you will do with them will decide whether you live or whether you die. It's as simple as that. You think, well, it's so simple, but what? Like, say seriously, like the sun is shining, all is good. Johnny, chill out. How are we at war? Well, let's go back to what Paul writes. And I'm going to just read little chunks of this to get it back in our heads and go through it. Let's, verse 11, put on uh, all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. We see here that Paul has a view of reality that has two dimensions to it. Paul understands reality to feature a physical and visible dimension, and also, on the other hand, a spiritual and invisible dimension. And actually, what happens in that invisible dimension affects what's going on in the visible dimension, in the bit that we kind of experience day in, day out. Now, in one sense, this is basic Christianity. I mean, obviously, we talk about invisible dimension with a ruler. The obvious ruler there is God. And he's kind of, just in case you're new to Christianity, he's kind of a big deal for us. <laughs> we mentioned him a lot. He's really the, the heart of it all. And so the idea of an invisible spiritual ruler is kind of just part of the territory. Um, however, what's clear here is that Paul doesn't just stop there. He also understands that there were and there were and are evil kind of powers, spiritual powers, who stand opposed to God in those sort of realms and stand opposed to God's people either. And those powers are engaged in a constant and unrelenting battle against God's people, which makes a difference. It shows itself in the lived experience of those people. To Paul, who's in prison at this point, and to the Ephesians, some who would have physical scars from being bashed around in a riot in the city where people are like, no, we worship this God. How dare you come in here and talk about Jesus? It's a, it was a battle. And it, the, what happened in the spiritual realms was affecting what happened in the lived experience of believers. Now, I know that sounds super weird. If you're thinking now, that is strange, that is odd, <laughs> are you for real? I get it. I'm, you know what? I'm kind of with you. I think this stuff's really strange. I think it's it's very unusual uh, way to look at the world in our present culture. There are all sorts of specific questions you might have about this, whether you're a Christian here or you're not a Christian, whether you've heard this loads of times or, or you've not heard this. 
And they're Christians, uh, they're questions that would go on uh, in kind of uh, in the ether of this sort of stuff within the church and within churches. Things like, who is this devil? Is he a personal being? Is he a metaphor? Who are these evil spirits? How do they interact with the world we live in? And those questions are important questions. And the mechanics of it all, when you dig deep, you think, really, let's, let's go a bit deeper. They can seem very odd indeed. Now, just because they seem odd, though, is I just recognize there's neither here nor there, really, uh, because we have a very specific way of looking at the world, which is itself odd, which is the Western worldview, which is largely materialistic in that sense. But what I'd say to you that if you want, if you're distracted by the mechanics of what we might call spiritual warfare here, what I'd ask you to do is, at the end of this talk, come and grab me and or email me or email the office, and I've got some resources that I've been using that have really helped me in this sort of stuff to kind of get some clarity on the detail and mechanics here, which I think is important. And I think at the very least, it's really helpful for us to know what the Bible actually teaches about these powers and what you might get from Dante or John Milton or the medieval church or the latest Netflix series. Okay? It is helpful to know the difference between those things at the very least, and I think there's more we can get from it as well. However, this morning, I don't want to distract us from the obvious point that Paul is making with the mechanics, with the detail, get sucked into that. Because I think there's a statement that anyone here, particularly if you're a Christian, will agree with, whatever the mechanics of it all are, and that would be the broad point here, that being a Christian is a battle. That's self-evident, I think. I think anyone who's been a Christian or has a look around will realize, yes, being a Christian is a battle. That's not something I need to argue to you. It's just how it feels in the world. And so when we see passages like this, actually, while there might be questions, it resonates with us. Yes, okay, I, I kind of forgotten this. But yes, it is a battle. It's a struggle being a Christian. Our staff team were talking on Tuesday morning, as we, we tend to do. And uh, one of the team mentioned that they'd been working on a project with a number of churches in their particular community over for the last few years but the recently it had been really hard to gather that group because at least one church had stopped existing and uh, a number of churches the leaders had left meaning they didn't have leaders the churches were there still just about making do but they didn't have anyone to lead so it's hard to gather them together when they were in that situation at this exact point another staff member chirps in and says well that's strange you should say that because I'm working in a very different part of Birmingham but I'm seeing exactly the same thing happening I'm trying to gather these churches together, and some are closed, some, the leaders are leaving, they've gone. Some of the churches that at the moment are hanging on by a thread are churches that have been serving God faithfully in our city, in I can think at least two cases, for over a hundred years. And now it's like, well, can we even keep going here? Of course, as most of you will be very well aware, this isn't just something happening far off or even just around the corner in our city. A few months ago, we closed one of our own churches, Church Central West. And looking around, I know that, that several, many of you guys here will be from Church Central West and would have come to join us at Church Central South. And you don't need me to tell you if that's the case uh, for you, that that hasn't been easy in the slightest. And I, I know it's not still easy. And I, I hope that we can continue working on those things. This is not light stuff. This is not easy stuff. We carry scars from this stuff. And I know that many in this room would. And that would be most probably telling for those who are part of Church Central West, but actually for any of us who are connected to Church Central, our little family of churches here in Birmingham, there are scars here. Because we were all like 
the triumph of Jesus, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. We're called in this city. Come on, let's go. Let's go. We're planting. God's talked to us about planting here, planting here, planting here, triumph, victory. What? Just had to close down a church. That doesn't sound like triumph and victory. What on earth's going on? Well, what's going on is we're in the middle of a battle, and I cannot understand all the different bits of this. I can't explain it all to you, but sometimes it looks like you lose fights in this battle, even though you're following the triumphant king of heaven. We know some of that stuff. A lot of us are still walking through some of that stuff. So, yeah, we might have questions about the nature of the battle, And there's much more to say about that than I could manage today. But I imagine for most of us, as Christians in Birmingham in 2022, if we just open our eyes and have a look, we will be fully aware. This isn't just a motivational speech. This is a lived reality for us. Life as a Christian is a battle. And that's really, really important that we got our heads around that. Because if you're in a battle, you do everything differently. You listen differently, for a start. You take instructions differently. You act differently. There is an increased sense of urgency if you think you're in a battle. There's a sense that you might have missed. It's possible you could have missed that earlier in this series. And so hopefully now Paul reframes the whole teaching of Ephesians in one small chunk, but making it very clear what the tone is. I'll keep reading from verse 14. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right, we've had some weird stuff. We've had some challenging stuff. We've had some war stuff. And now, guys, good news. We're on the armor of God. We're back to Sunday school. We can rest. We, we, most of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know this passage. This is classic Bible right here, isn't it? The armor of God. Who has ever done a, whoever did a Sunday school class in the Bible, uh, the armor of God as a kid? Yeah, loads of us, okay, loads of us. And suddenly think, what's Sunday school? Well, that's what we used to do. But that's what, right now, in <laughs> kids' work, I'm sure they're either dressing up in stuff or drawing or coloring an armor of God, I'm sure. And something far more profound and meaningful because in our kids' work we do that. But anyway, um, the armor of God is something that's classic. It's a classic Bible passage. It's memorable, it's visual, it's encouraging. But it's not entirely obvious what it means, is it? Is it? We've got this. It's easy. Oh, yeah, put on the armor of God. I've done that. Easy. What does it mean? I mean, I, to be honest, have struggled with this for many years. Now, maybe that's because of my upbringing. Because as a kid, I was taught to put on the armor every day. Has anyone else had had this? Maybe you do this now. Put on the armor every day. Yes, Pete, nodding vigorously. Now, Pete should probably come up and tell us what that means. But um, as a kid, um, I thought, okay, sounds a good idea. Put on the armor every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so what I would do is this, very simple. Before school each day, if I could get around to it and eat my breakfast in time, I would, in my mind, imagine myself putting on pieces of armor and matching them to the different bits. Pete, is that what you did too? Yeah, okay. Now, Pete would have done this much better than me, but this is how it went in my little head. Well, this is right. Okay, first one. uh, Belt of truth. Truth. What's truth? Truth, truth, truth. Truth's good. Truth's good. Yeah. Okay, belt. What's a belt? Belts are useful. Put on truth like a belt. Great. Done that. Fantastic. A righteousness, next one, breastplate of righteousness, 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 righteousness. It's a word in the Bible, and it's usually a good word. Good, righteousness, I've got that one. Breastplate. If I was a legionary in the Roman army, that would be a useful piece of kit. I'd like to have one. Therefore, the breastplate of righteousness, good, that's on two. And I went through the list like that. Zero idea what it meant. No idea at all. But I was like, I've put on the armor. So that's what I was told to do. 
fantastic, job done, I'm protected. <laughs> um, it would be fair to say that my understanding of the passage was somewhat limited, I would have thought. Now, you will be glad to hear, as I'm the person standing up here with a microphone, that I have studied this a little bit more since I was a, a child. But I've found that even among people who studied it far more than me, there is quite a lot of disagreement about what it practically and actually means to put on the armour of God. I think I can summarise two different schools of thought on this one, okay? For some people, they would say that putting on the armour is receiving the things that Jesus has done for us and expressing our dependence on him. It's largely a mindset thing of remembering and thanking Jesus for what he's done. Okay, that's one side. But then others would go, no, 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 that's not it at all. Putting on the armour is active. It's you doing something. It's actively choosing to live out the teachings of Jesus by developing the virtues that are listed in the passage. So over here is what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus. Over here is doing stuff. Well, which one is it? Well, let's just, um, let's take the list and have a little, little look. There's our list. I know that people like to match them up and go, oh, this is why salvation is a helmet. And this is why, you see, you're more advanced than that. I'm struggling just with the concepts. Okay, so I'm just going to deal with the words. Well, you can match them up if you like later. But these are the ones we've got. And as you look at them, you could see and think, well, those are all things we can thank Jesus for, every single one of them. And actually, more than that, if you look at that list, those are all things that actually, well, almost all of them, are the na names of Jesus given in the Bible. In uh, John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. Uh, he's referred to in other places as the righteous one. He's the prince of peace. He's our salvation. He is the word of God. He's called that in, in a number of places. And the spirit is the spirit of Jesus. So, uh, you could see how this could match to Jesus. And in Romans 13, actually, they t it, uh, Paul talks about the armor. Again, he talks about putting on armor. And he clarifies that with this phrase. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have it. Easy. Putting on the armor is accepting Jesus. He's accepting what Jesus has done for us in thankfulness, in praise, in admitting our utter dependency on him. We're putting on Jesus. We're remembering what he's done and walking in and living in the good of it. However, Surely it is notable that this passage comes directly after two entire chapters where Paul has been saying to us, this is how you live. You've got to do stuff here. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. And funnily enough, several of the qualities associated with the armor have been used directly in this way in the last few chapters. So uh, chapter 425, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. Maybe that's how you put on the belt of truth. Chapter 5, 8 to 9, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Maybe that's how you put on the breastplate, by living out righteousness, living righteously. Chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort. That's not about mindset there. That's about action. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Maybe that's how we equip our feet with the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. So here's the question. I'm not going to do a straw poll, but I wonder if, if I did, I wonder where you'd land. Do we put on the armor by recognizing things that Jesus has done for us, or do we put it on by making every effort to live according to those teachings? And the answer is yes, correct. All of the above is the answer. <laughs> it's both things. And what I think I 
I'm pretty confident in this conclusion is that has been the entire message of the whole book of Ephesians from chapter 1. We talked about it a few minutes ago. First bit of Ephesians, look what Jesus has done for you. He's rescued you from a hopeless existence. He's called you into his family. It's by grace you've been saved. He's made himself available to you. He loves you more than you could ever understand. Revel in what he's done. That's how you put on the armor. But at exactly the same time, the message of Ephesians has been, I quote, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Chapter 4, verse 1. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. Chapter 4, 17. Imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be careful how you live. Chapter 5, 15. That's how you put on the armor. We prepare ourselves for the battle and we step into Christ's victory when we accept what Jesus has done for us and we live it out in obedience to him. And if you just do one of them, my suggestion would be you would be unarmed in the battle. I think that's what Paul, Paul would say from this letter. If you said, no, I'll just take one of them, thank you very much. Um, and let's imagine you just appreciate Jesus a lot. But you kind of take it and leave it with the, the commands of God in your life. You know what? You will be unarmed in the battle. And this is not a battle that you want to go into in your tracksuit. But on the other hand, maybe you flip it. Maybe you think, no, okay, I've got it. I'm going to try my hardest to live the right way. I'll show you how good I am. I'm not going to steal anything. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to work hard. You watch me. But you do it because you think it's kind of a challenge and you're a pretty self-disciplined person. But you don't do it humbly acknowledging the work of God through Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. You want to try that? You will be completely unarmed in this battle. And I imagine you'll be taken out of the battle. Putting on the armor is about worship and it's about radical obedience. It's about resting in the grace of God and it's about making every effort. It's about loving Jesus and loving people. But Paul's not done. We got our armor, but then he goes on and he talks about a secret weapon that we have up our sleeve. It's not even listed as one of the armor. It's not, even on the, it's not even on the kind of list, the kit list, but it's our secret weapon. Now, I know I'm getting to the end of what I'm going to say here, and I've been, you know, we're getting to the end of the time, and you're like, well, okay, can I take this all in? You're going to have to work here. I'm going to read a passage to you. It's really between the lines. It's tricky. Can you spot the secret weapon? Are you, I'm looking. You're looking alert. I'll read it to you. Be really kind of get our brains in gear here. You got it. Verse 18. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Any ideas? What could it be, our secret weapon? I got it. Prayer. Good work, team. You're you're on it. Very good work. In these three verses, Paul tells us to pray explicitly four times. If you throw in ask God, which is essentially prayer, that's five. And uh, he gives us very helpfully the scope of our prayer, which is handy. What should we pray for? All believers everywhere. Thanks for that, Paul. That'll keep us busy for a while. And uh, when should we pray? Is it a morning deal? Is it an evening deal? Well, no, actually, it's uh, at all times and on all occasions. Paul likes prayer. Did you get that message? He thinks prayer is really, really uh, important. But what I love is verse 19, because then 
you can see this isn't just a teacher regurgitating something that we should do. Look at this. Yeah, pray at all times. Pray for all believers. And you know what, everyone? Please, please pray for me. This was dearly important to Paul. Paul is a guy who knows what the thick of the battle is like. He's in prison at the moment. He's known beatings. He's known floggings. He's known attempted assassinations. And he knows in that battle that prayer is vitally important. And so it's like, yeah, prayer, prayer. You pray out there. Like, pray for this, pray for that. Please, please pray for me. I need your prayers, what Paul's saying here. The call to prayer is coming from someone who knows what the fight is like. He needs prayer. We need prayer. We need to pray. I think God's underlined this to me this year in a way that I've not known for a long while. And he's done it in a, in a number of different ways. But it started in January when a, a good friend of mine had a heart attack while playing football. And some of you know this story. Some of you know this guy. And uh, he was 27 at the time. And he and his wife had just had their, their first baby. And he's playing football on a Sunday evening. He drops down on the pitch with a heart attack. And that Sunday evening, I find out on Monday morning, and it did not look good at all. Stats are that 10% of people who have heart attacks outside a hospital survive. And obviously, they're surviving, and they're surviving, isn't there? And so we prayed. I'm not saying that because I'm like, yeah, check us out. We prayed. I'm saying, what on earth else could we do? If I could have taken a week off work for my friend, I'd like to hope I would. Like, I'd just do that. What good would that do? Nothing. I could empty my bank account and give it to him. Nothing. He's in a coma. He's 27. His wife's at home with their small baby. What could we do? We could pray. That's it. So we gathered his university friends to pray. And we gathered his friends from church to pray. And we gathered friends further afield to pray. Christians gathered with us to pray. People who weren't Christians gathered with us to pray. We prayed in the morning. We prayed in the evening. And as we prayed, things looked up. We kept on praying. And things looked down. And we kept on praying, and they plateaued a little bit. And then we didn't hear anything for a few days, and we all thought the worst. Fast forwarding to today, my friend's alive. Obviously, you don't go through something like this completely unscathed. He's got a little Christian Erickson pacemaker in, if anyone knows Christian Erickson. But he's the same guy he was before, and he can do pretty much the same stuff as he could do before. It's been a miraculous recovery, but most people would say. And ever since I found out that my friend had turned the corner and that his chances of recovery were looking good, I've found myself asking this question over and over again. And it's this. What would have happened if we hadn't prayed? What would have happened if we hadn't prayed? And as time's gone on this year, I've bumped into a number of other things have come my way that are big things. Things that look like they're heading in a bad direction. And again, I've prayed. And I can think of at least two other things this year. Big things that were like flipping heck. I don't even want to think about the consequences of this one because this is looking bad. And I've prayed and a corner has turned unexpectedly. And I'm like, wow. And I've asked the same question. What would have happened if I hadn't prayed? I'll never know the answer to that question for sure. I'll be honest with you, there are other things I've been praying for this year that as far as it looks to most people, very different, little difference has been made whatsoever. And I believe some difference has been made, but it doesn't look like that on the surface. I can't put all these things together. I can't explain this to you in a kind of systematic way. 
But what I can do is when I read these words in Ephesians and I think of the battle that we're in as a church of people trying desperately to live for Jesus in 21st century Birmingham, I think to myself, you know what? I need to pray. And so please let's get the tone right, everyone, in our Christian lives here. We are not in peacetime. We're in a fight. This is not a time for complacency. This is urgent. So therefore, let's trust in what Jesus has done for us. Let's live our lives obediently to his commands and take them very, very seriously. And let us pray passionately to ask him for his strength in the challenges that lie ahead of us. You know, to this end, it's, it's good to be preaching on this this week because we have a very specific application, don't we? You've heard it already. This week, we've got our church week of prayer. Why not apply this this week? Can I ask all of you, if you're part of Church Central, if you're, you're, you're um, part of this church, and even if you're not, if you're just looking in, can I ask you, could you try to make at least one prayer gathering this week? For some of you, it'd be great if you could make more than that, but... Um, yeah, I'd love us all to be involved this week to pray together, to battle together for our church and for our city in prayer. But even, I don't even want to wait till then. Why wait till this evening? Well, we could do it now. Could uh, Johnny Lester come back up? Oh, there they go. Yeah, great. We're going we're gonna to end by praying uh, today. It's a, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, from the, the, the sermon, isn't it? It's like, it, doesn't, it writes itself, let's say. But we're going to pray, and we're not just doing this as a flippant throwaway thing. I don't know if anything grabbed you from what I said, but I want to pray for our city. You want to pray for our city? Yeah. Some people do. Guys, seriously, our city is in a lot of trouble at the moment. Our city is going the wrong way at the moment. There are things happening that we can do nothing. You can chat about economics all you want. It makes not one bit of difference. We've been given a weapon. We've been given something that can actually serve God in our city and it's prayer. And so, if we could stand, if you want to, these guys are going to lead us. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we're going to have about eight minutes, and we're going to pray for our city. Uh, and I'd love you to join us.